0: Hey, everybody, it's Doug Bursch, and this is The Fairly Spiritual Show. So discipleship, growing in the Lord, how do you do that? Do you go off by yourself and spend time with God and then get real spiritual and then hang out with other people? Or, or maybe it's something you do with other people in community. Here's a hint. It's community. Yeah, I know there's time you spend with God alone, but when you look at how Jesus discipled people, he discipled in a group. We're going to look at how Jesus discipled. We're also going to look at how discipleship is less a process and far more a relationship with God.
1: They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through But you've spoken. I owe
0: That song. I like that our life is hidden in God's hands. By the way, that's my brother Dan Bursch singing that. You can get his music through iTunes. Uh, this is The Fairly Spiritual Show, and uh, on the show uh, recently we've been talking about my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, and I've been going through each chapter of the book. No, you don't need to listen to every podcast to figure out what's going on, although really, why wouldn't you? But we've been just going through the chapters and just talking about the importance of community in every area of the Christian life. And today we're going to talk about discipleship through community. Now, discipleship is one of those spiritual-sounding words for just growing in the Lord. How do we grow as a Christian? Uh, No Christian is more spiritual than another Christian. We all have the same amount of God. There are no super spiritual people in the kingdom of God but we can all position ourselves in a way to grow, to mature, to become wise. We do have a choice to yield to the kingdom or to resist the kingdom. And so I want to talk about community and discipleship and discipleship from the perspective of community. And there's a few things I want to look at here. Uh, One, uh, Jesus. Jesus as the model of discipleship. You know, One of the things that we love to do, and we've talked about this a lot on this show, And by the way, I'd love it if you could go to our website, fairlyspiritual.org, and could you support this podcast? I need some supporters. The best way to support this is subscribe through iTunes or go to fairlyspiritual.org and pick up one of these books. The book is The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. If you could purchase the book or invite others to purchase the book uh, through Amazon or through the website or to subscribe to the podcast, that would be tremendous. I'm trying to get the word out, trying to get the message out there, and you're my advocate. You are the one who's going to get this message out there. I would encourage you, if you're getting anything out of these podcasts, if you're excited about what's happening, if you appreciate the spirit of the dialogue, the way these shows are produced, the way these shows uh, are presented, then please share this with other people. Go to fairlyspiritual.org. Uh, you can find ways to share the show, you can find ways to support what I'm doing, the best way to support it, frankly, prayer, and then, honestly, if you could purchase the book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. I'm not doing this to make money. I'm doing this to further this ministry. The goal is to be able to do more podcasts, uh, to be able to start again some of the radio ministry I've done in the past, just to get the word out to facilitate a better dialogue and a frequently bitter world. But today we're talking about uh, discipleship through community, and one of the things we do is we just individualize everything, and we've been talking a lot about this. And even when it comes to Jesus and his disciples, it's amazing how in the Western world we make this all about individualism. And one of the examples is, why did Jesus have disciples? What's the reason for that? And sometimes the answer is like this. Well, Jesus wanted to train people. And so in order to train people, uh, he picked 12 disciples and then he trained those disciples to do what he did. And so uh, we'll use that as a model for training or for mentoring or for discipleship that you need to train up or raise up other leaders. Well, there might be an aspect of that to why Jesus ministered with dis- with disciples, but there's a bigger issue here. The reason Jesus had disciples or ministered with disciples is because it would have been sin for Jesus to minister alone. That's right. We've looked at this throughout the past shows and throughout Scripture, that God has created humans to express his fullness through community. For Adam, it was not good for him to be alone, so God created Eve. God created community, and he expresses his fullness not just through individuals, but through community. He expresses his fullness through the gathered body, the church, which is his body, the body of Christ. And so Jesus is the sinless, perfect Son of God. And for Jesus to live the perfect, sinless life on earth, he needed to minister as the perfect man. I mean, he was God on earth, but he was to minister as Adam should have ministered, or as any human was supposed to minister from the beginning. And we were supposed to minister in community, not alone, not in isolation, not by ourselves. It's not my kingdom. It's not my way or the highway. It's not my little ministry. That's why there's something fundamentally wrong with ministries that are built around an individual. I know I can say that even as I'm doing the fairly spiritual show, but one of the goals here is to facilitate, and I hope you see this heart, my goal is not to grow my church, but to grow the church and to help other leaders become the best they can be so that the church and all of leadership can be healthy. But Jesus gives us the example that he calls disciples to minister with him because it would have been sin for him to minister alone. But there's another thing that you see in Jesus's discipleship process, and I'll use that term discipleship process, because when you're a pastor or a leader, they'll ask you this. What's your discipleship process? How do you move people from you know, pagan to Christian to uh, growing as a Christian to eventually a leader? What's the process that gets them from point A to point B or point Z? Well, Jesus's discipleship process is a little different than often the church's process. One of the things he does is he doesn't just deal with people individually; he deals with them in a group. You notice with the disciples, he doesn't like train one person and get him ready, and then train another person and get him ready. He just trains all twelve at once. He he gathers these people together, and and you know he calls you know a group of people here and a group of people there, and their stories have they don't all come right on the same day. All twelve disciples, but at the beginning of his ministry, right away he calls these disciples together and he disciples them as a group. They have different maturity levels. They have different understandings of the kingdom of God, and he deals with them in different ways, but he deals with them as a group. And he ministers to them in a group context. You even know he ministers with them individually in a group context is because we know the stories of how he individually deals with them because they're shared with a larger group. We have where he rebukes Peter, right? Peter says to Jesus, you know, may you never be crucified or may you never suffer. And and what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes him and says, Get behind me, Satan. But Jesus rebukes Peter not in private for his own personal discipleship, but Jesus rebukes Peter in public, in the community. And then he turns to the crowd and he shares a message about following him and whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. He actually corrects and disciples Peter, not in isolation, not just Peter and Jesus on their own walking the highways of life, you know, just me and Jesus in the footprint poster of life. Jesus does some really deep discipleship of Peter in community, in front of the disciples and in front of the crowd. And you see this repeatedly throughout scripture, that Jesus has no problem ministering to the group discipling the group. Another thing you see in his discipleship process is he doesn't tell the disciples, you know, you need to go home and get yourself ready, get yourself at some level of proficiency, and then you can come follow me. No, he just says, right now, follow me. And this is one of the areas that I think in our church we need to really look at, because we've created a third category. And and I'm looking at uh, chapter 12 of the book, The community of God, theology of the church from a reluctant pastor, and uh, I I spent a bit of time talking about this. But we have created a third category in our church. Not just our—I'm not talking about the church that I pastor, but in the church in general. We've created. There used to be just two categories. There was a category of follow Jesus or not follow Jesus, but we've created a third category. There's the follow Jesus. And then there's the not follow Jesus. And then there's the, well, I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm not just quite ready yet to really commit. That's the third category that we've created. The third category of, yeah, you know, Jesus is good, and I've given my life to him, but I'm just not in that place where I'm ready to truly be a disciple. I'll just, I'm going to read something from the book. This is from... uh, Let's say it's page 144, and uh, I, just, I just want to read this to you because I really believe that the majority of Christians in many churches are in this category. This is 144 from The Community of God. Our culture exhibits a connection problem we cannot solve simply through the creation and impleta- implementation of better discipleship pathways. When I look at Christ's model of discipleship, I see two categories. There are followers of Jesus And non followers of Jesus. Everything else is irrelevant. In our modern era, we have created a third category. And within that category, we have hundreds of subcategories. Today, we still have followers of Jesus and non followers of Jesus, but now we have a third group. The quote, saved but not yet ready. The saved but not yet ready seem to be an ever growing group of believers who define themselves as saved by God but not yet ready to serve and to follow him. They are tomorrow disciples, or someday disciples, believing that a day will come other than today when they will be willing and able to completely follow Christ and do the true work of the kingdom. Until that tomorrow comes, they are satisfied with being perpetually rescued, nurtured, fed, and taught by others. They are spectator Christians who believe the work of the kingdom is done by healthier wiser, more mature disciples of Christ. Reluctant or resistant to completely following Christ, they speak of a future when they will finally surrender to the call of discipleship. They are disciples on hold, who see true discipleship as something they will fully embrace once their life is in order. Work slows down, the kids are older, the mortgage is paid, and they finally have time to focus on the things of God. They are give me just a little more Christians looking for one more sermon, one more Bible study, one more program or friendship to solidify their faith and to provide them with the courage necessary to fully commit to following Jesus. In the New Testament era, there were only two categories of discipleship you were either a follower or not a follower, there was simply no in between. Jesus did not ask the disciples to put their lives in order before they followed him. He did not tell them to prepare themselves a little more before they entered into the ministry of the kingdom. Instead, he called them to leave everything behind and to follow him. When I look at the church today and when I look at Christians today, so many of us are looking for that other category, believing that some other super spiritual person is going to be the one takes that next step. But when we look at discipleship in Jesus's time, it was a willingness to come as you are, to abide with a community of other disciples that kind of don't really know what they're doing, to learn of Jesus, and to minister the kingdom, and to learn as you go. Now, there were some who didn't go with Jesus, who wanted to go with Jesus, but he said, stay where you're at, and they stayed where they're at, and it was even more complicated for them, and they had to do their faith steps and they had to minister the kingdom because their testimonies were so strong and powerful that there was no turning back as well the reality is in our culture we have the luxury of hiding they didn't have the luxury of hiding then they didn't once you gave your life to christ and you were baptized you were part of the enemy's side you say doug that's too strong well well the reality is in that culture you were supposed to be the religion of the eldest male of your house, right? So if your father was a certain religion, that was supposed to be your religion. If your master was a certain religion, as a slave, that was supposed to be your religion. So if you were a wife and you gave your life to Christ and your life was different than your husband's, if as a wife, your life was different than your husband's life or your religion was different than your husband's religion, you'd be beaten and scorned and shamed. You might be divorced, you might be disowned. If you're a slave and you chose a different faith and were baptized, a different faith than your master, you'd be beaten, scorned, and shamed. If you were a son or a daughter and you chose a different faith than your father, you'd be beaten, maybe murdered, disowned. That's why there are so many poor people in the book of Acts. There was no, I'm going to be a Christian for a while and see if it gets me a better job. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to give my life to Christ because I've messed my life up. You know, we have this idea of Christianity as a rescue gospel. You know, maybe he'll help my marriage, and maybe he'll you know, help me with my drinking problem, and maybe he'll help me with my family. But the reality is when people received Christ in New Testament times, their families were destroyed in some cases, disowned by brother and sister and father and mother. There was no turning back. There was no in-between place where they could sort of follow Jesus. It was a death to self. It was Jesus is my all in all. He is my inheritance. He is my life. There was no turning back. I once went to uh, Ethiopia with a an organization that brings Bibles to, to people in oppressed areas. And I met with a man who became a Christian, and he came out of a Muslim environment, and I met with uh, him—basically, he had been in hiding, and he had given his life to Christ three years—excuse me, he had given his life three months uh, before we met him, and he had seen Christ in a vision. Christ had come to him in a vision, and this often is the story that you hear uh, from Muslims who've come to Christ in very oppressive environments— and he told us he found Christ, and Christ came to him, and he gave his life to Christ, and he had great joy in that salvation. Well, as the result of him giving his life to Christ, his family wanted to murder him unless he would disown his faith. And so he was hid in the church, and they hid him in the basement, and uh, his family, uncles, aunts, relatives, were there to either beat him or murder him, until he, you know, either they wanted him to renounce his faith, or to murder him for changing his faith. And so he had been in hiding, being moved from church to church, city to city, because of his commitment to Jesus. You ever hear that song, I've Decided to Follow Jesus, No Turning Back? That was his life. There's no turning back, there's no, well, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't working out. Baptism in America is often, eh, maybe it's a fresh start, I'll get baptized. If you if you talk to some pastors and you you, you talk to them you know, privately and honestly about baptism, often people will come and get baptized as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. They've done a lot of stuff they feel bad about, and so they want to get baptized to feel better, and they get baptized and you never see them again. You couldn't do that in the New Testament era. You couldn't be baptized in front of people and just disappear. No, there was a cost to it. Discipleship was a real thing. You either were following Jesus or you weren't following Jesus. Yet we've created this other category. And so community was essential because you didn't have that family you left. You had a new family. New fathers, new mothers, new brothers, new sisters. People that would be there to help you because literally others had disowned you. You know, when I look at discipleship, I don't know if I have many answers on discipleship. I, I, don't, I don't think I do a very good job with it, to be honest. I think if you came to my church, you'd go, oh, Doug, there's all kinds of things you do wrong. And I'd say, you're right. And one of my struggles with discipleship is so often we make it into a process. But the reality is discipleship has to be a relationship. Discipleship has to be far more than a program. It has to be a continual relationship. And one of the reasons I'm so adamant about this is because my father really ruined me as a child. And I'll tell you why. When I was a little kid, my dad would take his hand and he'd cup behind my ear, my earlobe. And he'd kneel down or he'd lean against me or I'd be sitting on his lap. And he'd whisper in my ear and he'd say, Doug, the Lord is always speaking to you. God is always speaking to you. And sometimes he'd say, you know, Doug, the Lord is always speaking words of kindness and goodness and love over you. Listen to him. Listen to the voice of God. And then usually he'd say something after that. The Lord is always speaking to you. Listen to him and do what he says. He'd say things like God is always speaking. Listen, do what he says. God is good. Listen to the voice of God. When my father gave me my first Bible, he handed me an outliner, uh, and he said, "Uh, there's a lot of things you won't understand here. That's okay. Just read and listen for the voice of God. And anything you understand and anything that makes sense, underline it. God is speaking to you, and God is good. I was raised with that conviction and that belief, and I believe that because my dad and my mom were different than the people around me. We were raised in a home of love and grace and kindness. They were were gentle. It was a home that wasn't full of a bunch of rules and regulations and laws. It was a, a home full of lots of hugs and love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and grace. I could hear my parents praying and interceding for us and And they were kind and loving. There was a different spirit in the home. And I knew that my God had a relationship with my father. And my father had a relationship with my God. And I knew that my mom had a relationship with God. And God had a relationship with my mom. And I wanted that. And so as a young kid, I listened for the voice of God. And it radically influenced me. I remember in second grade, I think it was, it wasn't second grade, it was third grade. I remember getting in a fight in short recess. You know, we had two recesses, like a 10-minute long recess and a 30-minute long recess. And I remember getting in a fight with one of my friends, and, and clearly he was wrong. You know, I was right. And I was in a fight with him, and I was upset. I wasn't going to talk to him for the whole recess, right? And so I'm off on my own, and I'm upset. But then I just remember my father saying, Listen for God's voice. And my dad wasn't like, Listen for God's voice because God's angry. Or, you know, my dad never hit me. He, he didn't ground me. He didn't punish me. He loved me. He taught me to listen for God's voice. And I remember listening for God's voice. And God was so clear. He was, You need to apologize, Doug. My mom, many times, had taught me to start over and to apologize, so I knew I was supposed to go over to my friend and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? (laughs) I remember going over to the other side. You know, I was on the opposite side of the building, you know, for playground, and I went to the other side, and my friend was over there, and I went to him, and I said, I'm sorry, uh, would you forgive me? (laughs) And he looked at me like, forgive you? What? What's forgiveness? had no idea. Whatever. Okay, fine and it uh, didn't mean much to him but it meant much to me i was taught to hear the voice of god and for me growing up and i'll just tell you this the home was always more sacred than church church confirmed what was happening in the home but it was just one or two hours or you know 3 hours of the week but home was you know always home was the rest of the week there was no way, there was, there was no way that the, the church could counteract the spirituality that occurred on a daily basis in the home. It either confirmed what was going on or it contrasted. And so that really affected me as a pastor because for me, I, I don't relate to people who think it's the job of the church to be the discipling part of their life. I mean, I get the idea if you don't have a home where God's in your home. I get the idea the church should be a place for people who don't have Christian parents, for people who don't have Christian homes, for people who don't have any of Christ in the rest of their life. I get that part. But if you're a Christian, and let's say you're married and you and your spouse are Christians, your house should be far more sacred than anything I can bring you. And if literally the health of your kids is dependent upon whether or not I do a good enough Sunday school or children's church or youth group, we're in trouble. Because here's the reality. The home was so sacred that I grew up in that youth group could have been terrible and they could not have dissuaded me from following Jesus. And the schools could have been corrupt, but they could not have dissuaded me from following Jesus. I didn't need prayer in the schools for me to know that prayer was real. And if you don't have something real in the home, it doesn't matter what you have that one hour in church. Now, can God overcome our ineptitudes? You bet. But I didn't want to build a church based on that, and that belief that boy, for people to be discipled, you better have discipleship 101 and 201 and 301 and this process, okay, this is what we'll do. and We'll make them take these classes and they'll memorize these scriptures and they'll do these things and they'll get these stars and they'll go. And to think that that is how people are discipled, I guess. But for me, discipleship was that personal relationship with Jesus led by the Holy Spirit that occurred every day and every hour of my life. And that's what I want to facilitate when people gather together in the church. Yes, do we want to encourage each other? Do we want to teach? Do we want to provide opportunities where the community of God gathers and we strengthen one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and find ways to release each other in our gifts? But that whole concept that we'll create a math and a process and we'll just you know we'll get this all figured out and we'll move them from this step to that step and they'll, they'll become these, these mature Christians. I don't know if I buy that. In fact, I have been around churches with elaborate discipleship processes, and people go through those processes, and I don't necessarily see transformed lives. I see churchy people, but I don't necessarily see people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit any more than other people. In fact, when I look at our world, I don't necessarily see uh, Christians who look that much different than the rest of the world in how we approach the world, and how we communicate to one another, and how we operate and interact online. For me, discipleship is not a program, but a relationship. It is abiding with Jesus. It's walking with him, and that's that's the model that Jesus gave. It was, you know, we, we separate. It's interesting. Don't we do this? We'll go, here's the things Jesus taught, and here's the things Jesus said, and here's the things Jesus did, and then we make a program out of those things. But the reality is, What is the strength of Jesus's ministry? It's the incarnation that God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he just walked with the disciples and the disciples didn't learn a program. They just abided with him. They just walked with him. You know, at night they laid down their head in some field or in a barn or in a house and they were just in the same room. You can imagine that. Sometimes they're in a room or in the corner. One of the youngest disciples is just, you know, John is laying his head down to go to sleep, and he looks across the room, and he sees his Savior, and there's comfort in abiding in the room with his Savior. There's comfort in walking on the road and talking with his Savior. There's comfort in the presence of God. That's my discipleship process. Making room for God in every situation, in every day. And the most dangerous religious spirit is the one where we isolate people from the presence of God. And we're like, okay, you know, let's just make sure that here's the real big thing. When the music starts, that's when God shows up. When the sermon starts, that's when God shows up. That distances people from God. When we start doing the really spiritual stuff, that's when God shows up. The reality is when I wake up on Sunday morning, God is just as much present and alive and active as he is when I start preaching. Now when we gather together and we all unite in worshiping God, there's power as a unified body as we connect and worship worship God. But God is just as much present in every activity of of my life. And it's dangerous. I see this. I see. I, I, I guess speak at churches, and I I see worship teams just tearing into each other as they're you know they're they're practicing before they they do the music right, and they're rude to each other, and they're biting satire with one another, and angry and grumpy, and you know because they're just kind of practicing before and grumpy at the sound tech, and the sound tech's grumpy at them, and there's all this tension, and then they get done, and then church starts. And then it's like, oh, aren't you so glad to be here? And isn't Jesus good? And thank you, Lord. And I see pastors angry and upset and gossiping and and just rude or not present and just kind of just acting like the rest of the world. And then service starts and then they put on their Christian voice. And there's families getting ready for church where they're fighting and yelling at each other and being jerks in the car, and then when they get to church, there's smiles. I remember going to a renewal and a revival service, and and things happening during the service where it really felt like God was moving and connecting with people and radical transformation. And I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And I remember leaving that service, and this wasn't at our church. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that bad things don't happen in our church, but this is when I was in seminary, and I I remember leaving that service, and I'm out in the the parking lot. And there's this woman just yelling at her kid, just yelling, yanking his arm, screaming at him about what a bad kid he is because he's being naughty. And that poor kid had spent like three hours in the nursery. And I'm thinking, if your revival moment doesn't make it to the parking lot, then it has no value. What am I saying with all this? Discipleship processes are great. But for me, discipleship has to be making room for the presence of God in every situation, in every place, in every moment of our life. Discipleship isn't just me isolating from community. Discipleship is when I'm alone, and discipleship is when I'm with people. If you look at the way Jesus discipled, it was just everything. It was this, follow me, come be with me just be with me be with me you you guys are all on different levels it's okay we're just all going to be together peter i'm not going to isolate you here right now i'm going to talk with you about some problems i'm going to let other people listen because they need to learn some things and you need to learn some things and we're just going to do this together and i'm not going to minister alone here i'm going to let you minister and i'm going to minister and we're going to do this together because god has created us and i've created you for this situation to express my glory through community and to grow in my in understanding of who I am through community and through the messiness of relationship. And Whenever we try to systematize it and simplify it to some easy steps or to isolating ourselves and getting everything right and then coming back to community, we miss the fullness of God. I know there's a lot to talk about there, but I address much more of this in the book. And some of the stuff I just talked about today, I just feel like the Holy Spirit put on my heart and is nowhere in the book. I just want to encourage you. God's discipleship process for you is that He's speaking to you, He's leading you, you can listen, you can follow, and you can trust that He's called you to grow, not in isolation, but in community. All right? Hey, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to the website, fairlyspiritual.org. You can subscribe to the Fairly Spiritual Show on iTunes. And, oh, I'd love it if you could pick up this book and share it with others. You can purchase it on Amazon, Kindle. There's also an Audible version for those of you who don't like to read. Uh, it's called The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. Find out more information at fairlyspiritual.org. This theme song is by my brother Dan Bursch. Check out his music on iTunes. I will see you
1: later. They say that I cannot dream.